We are steadily charting our way through Romans. We're midway through Romans 8. Moy will be preaching next Sunday uh, to finish off our Roman series. And then on Father's Day, we've got a new series starting up for the summer. And we'll come back to Romans in the fall. Last week, we read this. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. In these verses, Paul makes the big claim that glory awaits those who suffer with Christ. It's an amazing promise, but it does not always occupy our thoughts and desires the way that it should. When in the middle of hardship or suffering, sweet thoughts about our future glorification seem almost too good to be true. If anything, when we suffer, we tend to go the opposite direction where we think that God has, for some reason, turned against us. In 2015, my my first year here, a tornado ripped through the little community of Glen Heights. And I remember seeing the aftermath. Some of you were there to see it and speaking with survivors who could recall the terror of having Uh, of hearing the roar of a train just right up above their their house as the whole house is shaking things are uh are falling off of book stands and as they're watching the the stuff in their backyard fly across the yard and feeling just the the whole force and power of just nature sitting up above them now along with a team of church members i help pick up people's memories we picked up their pictures and their photo albums and their uh, souvenirs from places they had been. We, 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 we picked up all these possessions out of the debris, and I, I, can't, I can't forget remembering what it was like at that moment, just asking the question how we could have glory in a creation where such devastation is possible. Just, I mean, a boat had flown through a house. We had cars toppled over on top. And just thinking that glory awaits that kind of rubble and debris is just hard to believe. In almost eight years of lead pastor ministry, I've also had the sad joy of walking alongside people who have died uh, from cancer. Um, People who have received terrible diagnosis. And after months of chemotherapy, radiation treatments, and experimental surgeries, a person's body can take quite a hit, can't it? Just, they look incredibly different. I remember sitting with some of these people and looking at them at the state that they were in, the, the weak, frail, broken children of God, and to think these very same people who had almost no more muscle, had no fat to speak of, who, had, who looked like they were skeletons with skin on, just thinking that glory awaits even their bodies and to think how difficult that was. To think about a day when, when we would have bodies that cancer can no longer debilitate. Just an incredible, hard to believe truth. Now looking at the world around us, it can be difficult to accept that there is a glorious future that awaits us. It's hard to believe that sometimes, isn't it? If we're just honest, However, this is exactly the truth that Paul holds out in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 30. Because God has done such gracious work in making us his children, we can trust that God will finish the work he began. That he's not going to leave this work undone. Even though the world is filled with suffering, even though we are presently weak and not even a semblance of what we will be, God will will bring his children to glory. That's the truth that we're holding out today. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. One of the first things we should notice about this passage is its absolute honesty. Paul doesn't gloss over the fact that suffering exists. The phrase, the sufferings of this present time, refers to the general sufferings we endure in this fallen world. Everything from chronic pain to illness to war to pandemics and to the death of a loved one. Paul does not pretend that everything is right and well for God's children in this world. 
even as God's children, we still endure pain, we still endure mourning, we still die. We are not spared cancer, heart attacks, back pain, as those of you that were at the Jump Palace last night know, right? We're not spared the, the need for knee replacements. We're not spared any of that. We're not spared the travesties of war, the painful pinch of economic recessions. We pay the same price as everybody else does at the gas prices, at the gas pumps. We face the same stress of downsizing. We face fearful diagnoses. We face foreclosures. We face all kinds of things, just like everyone does. And we, like everyone else, are steadily marching toward the graveyard. We suffer. Now, I think it's important to not simply pass over Paul's honesty about suffering. Helping people understand the role of suffering in their lives is a key element of discipleship. In fact, I would say it's the crucial element of discipleship. The existence of pain and suffering, and then the other side of this, the claim that God loves his people and has good in store for them, is for many paradoxical. These two things don't go together. Suffering existing, God being good and having good plans. If not outright problematic, when people first walk with Christ, when people first put their trust in Christ, if they don't understand, or if they don't come to understand how God's goodness and our suffering go together, you're, you're looking at the potential of Jesus' parable where the, 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 vine, the, the seed sprouts, but then the hardship of the sun comes and it kills it, withers it. My friends, we, we are reaping generations of, of, of non-biblical teaching where pastors and evangelists and normal Christians have, uh, have, have propagated a false teaching that by walking with Jesus, life somehow gets better. I don't know where it began. I don't know how that teaching started, but it's not true. Life is hard. In fact, it becomes more difficult after following Jesus. Now, you're able to properly place things by faith. You can endure stronger, but it doesn't get better. I mean, you're, you're still gonna get fired someday, possibly. You're still gonna have to go to the hospital. Just because you believe in Jesus doesn't mean that you're not gonna suffer. In fact, believing in Jesus and your faith in Jesus is gonna lead you headfirst into suffering because that's his plan for making you into the image of Christ. You cannot avoid it, nor should you want to avoid it. Suffering is used by God. It's a part of his plan. Now, we can do one of two things. We can either deny suffering and act like, oh, no, no. If you're suffering, then it's because of some sin that you're in. But God's people that love God don't suffer. So that's denial. Like, this is this deny that Christians suffer. The other side is to become absolutely cynical and despairing, right? You know, like, uh, like Eeyore, oh, you know, we're all going to die. You know, um, <laughs> we can become that. So those, those are your two options. Generally speaking, that was a, I, I did pretty good for that, for being, what is it, 10, 11 o'clock in the morning, okay. So you can either become cynical or you can deny it, but Paul doesn't do that. Paul doesn't pretend that God's children who love and obey him well will avoid suffering. He also is not a cynic that wants you to dwell on the fact that suffering's coming. He doesn't want you to, to think that suffering is an end in itself. He doesn't just tell us you're gonna live in pain and die in pain and that's it, you just need to be sad about it. Instead, Paul acknowledges the reality and certainty of suffering, while at the same time, he infuses our suffering with hope. He infuses our suffering with hope. Rather than denying that suffering exists, Paul highlights the reality of present suffering in order to contrast. He's, he's laying out our suffering like the, you, you guys who have shopped for wedding rings, knows, they lay out a black cloth, right? And then they put the ring on top of that. Why? Because it highlights the diamond. He's doing the same thing. He unrolls the black backdrop of suffering so that we can understand the beauty and the brilliance and the shining glory of the diamond that's to come in Christ. Now just think of what this means for us. Our suffering is very real. 
Our suffering is very real. But the glory that's to come is arguably more real than even this present suffering. Paul, Paul just says, don't even put them on, don't even compare them. They're not, they're not comparable. You've got real suffering, but even more real glory to come. Just think about how awesome that is. It stinks to have cancer. I mean, everything goes on. Hold your futures in the balance. Chemotherapy sucks out the energy. You wither away kind of slowly through this. It's painful. The surgeries hurt. All that hurts. Painful, painful hurt. It's not pleasant, right, to engage in decades of chronic illness or disease. It's extremely bitter to have to bury a loved one. It's probably the most painful things we can endure is when we have to say goodbye to someone that we love, a spouse or a child, and, and to bury them. It's incredibly bitter. And yet Paul says, as bad as all those things are, they are not worth comparing to the even, much more greater, unfathomable glory to come. That's hard for me to imagine. How is it that the, the trials that we go through are, are so momentary and light compared to the heavy glory that's to come? The weight of glory, as scripture talks about, that's to come. So this means that we don't have to despair in our suffering. This means we shouldn't deny that we're going to suffer. Instead, we can have hope even in the midst of our afflictions knowing that suffering will one day give way to an even greater, more beautiful glory. Paul continues throughout this passage to contrast what is and what will be. In other words, he, he wants us to see the present reality of the fall, and he wants us to look ahead to the future reality of restoration. So we're, we're going to do both today. We're going to look at now, and we're going to look at what's to come. He considers two aspect of the, aspects of the fall. First, he looks at fallen creation and, and then acknowledges that it's not as it should be. And then he considers us as imperfect, weak disciples who are not as we should be. So creation's not as it should be. We are not as we should be. However, in considering both fallen creation and our weakness, Paul reminds us that though things are not as they should be, God will faithfully accomplish both creations and our restoration. He's gonna, he's gonna restore everything, make it right. Now, Paul turns to creation first. Creation is not as it should be. Here's what he says. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, I can't even say that, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, from this passage, we learn that creation is broken, absolutely fallen. It has been subjected to futility, which we find out means later, it means death or decay. That's what the word corruption means. Futility by itself means kind of this vaporous temporality. It's, it's here and then gone. It withers and it goes away. Um, we see this in our own world, right? Things don't flourish as they should. I planted a garden in my backyard this year, and it was amazing to watch these little plants sprout up and start giving out vegetables, and then suddenly the bugs decide that that's their invitation to the dinner, and now my squash plants are dead. Futility and decay. Things don't, I, ideally I should be able to plant a seed and I get squash plants and lots of squash. But because we live in this world of futility, bugs eat the squash plants. How broken is that? In this world, we, we live in a world where animal species completely die out. Animal species can go extinct, and some of them are facing extinction. We have vast areas that face drought, and, and once garden-like, green, lush places are now being turned into deserts. Just looking at the world around us, even with all of its beauty, sometimes it's difficult to imagine that there was once upon a time a place called Eden where there was peace and everything thrived. 
Paul describes the decay that we live in as creation's bondage to corruption. It's bondage to this digression, to this decay that's happening. But this corruption is not the end of the story. That's not all there is. Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Now, the him in this verse is not Adam. It's not talking about how Adam subjected creation to futility. It's talking about how God subjected creation to futility. Why in the world would God subject his own creation to futility? I mean, it's echoing Genesis 3 when God curses the ground, when God curses the livestock, when God pushes humanity out of, the, out of Eden. Why would God do that? Well, it's not just a punishment, as you might think. It's not just him giving out consequences for the fall. It's actually in, in this justice that he gives of a corrupt world, it is also a hope-giving action. God subjected creation to futility, listen to this, in hope that creation itself will be free from its bondage to corruption. The present futility, the, the fact that we live in this fallen nature highlights the future freedom. It, it contrasts it in such a way that God in giving curse to this world mercifully builds up an anticipation for the new world to come. Every little knee ache, back break, whatever it is, the sweat off your face, all of that is working mercifully to point you forward to the freedom that's to come, where we no longer have that kind of corruption. And he preaches that this restoration is going to come when God's children are revealed, which will only happen when Christ returns. Creation will be renewed when we as God's people see our Savior and become like him and inherit glory with him, and then the entire world will be made new. It's an amazing promise that we don't bask in enough. The restoration will happen even if it may not currently seem plausible in the present. At this very moment, the whole creation is groaning with pains of childbirth. See, here again, Paul's recognizing that the promise of future restoration, restoration does not negate the fact that we live in a very, very broken and fallen world. Restoration will come, nonetheless. The world is groaning, everything is broken, everything is dying, and yet resurrection and restoration will come. Now, if that was bad enough, if, if we just you know, realized that the creation was groaning, that would be bad enough. But it's, it's not just creation that groans. It's us. We groan. Creation longs to be store, restored, but so do our bodies. Our bodies groan for the redemption that's to come, specifically, specifically the resurrection and the per perfection of bodies. In other texts, Paul talks about how our bodies waste away daily. Outwardly, we waste away, but inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. In 2 Corinthians 5, 2, he compares our bodies to tents. I don't know how, how many of you have slept in tents before, but especially old tents with holes, that's kind of us right now. We're just old tattered tents that are continuing to tear and break more and the rain's leaking a little bit more every day. And yet, according to 2 Corinthians 5.2, one day we will take off the tent and it will become a palace. It'll become an amazing royal house. How amazing is that? 1 Corinthians 15, he proclaims that there will be a day when the perishable will become imperishable, when the mortal will become immortal. With every passing year and every new proof that you are aging, your body groans to be renewed. Every sorrow, every new worry wrinkle etched on your face, every gray hair, all of that is a fresh reminder of your need for physical redemption, for your body to be set free from the decay that has been brought into this world because of sin. Admittedly, thoughts about the new do not always excite us as it should. We hear sermons like this, we kind of sit back and kind of like, okay, yeah. We, we know these texts are in the scriptures. We know how exciting it is to think about, but yet we're not all that excited about it. 
It's almost, okay, it's almost like we're looking at it, it's like, okay, but my present suffering right now is what's really important. I'm, I'm glad glory's to come, but what's really important right now is I might lose my job. What's really important right now is I think I have a tumor growing in my lungs. What's really important right now is that my back hurts in this stupid chair and you're preaching forever long. What really matters is that. Thanks, Daniel. But what Paul says is flip it over. What doesn't matter is the fact that your back hurts because you sit through a long sermon at the moment. What really matters is that someday you will have a new back and you can sit forever long in the presence of Jesus. We, we, we tend to focus so much on the brokenness now that we forget about the amazingness of what's to come. My friends, as Christians, we are so often underwhelmed by expectations of the future. I think at worst because we don't really believe they're going to happen. That's the danger. Nominal Christians are fine talking about, hey, yeah, 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 someday we'll be in heaven, someday we'll be on a new earth, someday we'll have resurrection, but they don't really believe that. They acknowledge its existence. They acknowledge that that's what scripture says, but we don't get excited about it and it doesn't change us in the daily world, in our daily lives, because we don't actually, might not believe that it's really gonna happen. It's just too good to be true. We just don't buy it fully. I think some of the fear in churches is kind of humorous, actually. Some people, believe this or not, actually believe that the life to come will be more boring than this life. As if we're some, some fat baby naked angels, you know, hanging around on clouds just wondering what in the world we're gonna do. My, my friends, that, that, is, that is as far from possible what scripture describes your future as. It's not boring, it's not just one long church service where we're just preaching to one another. It's not a future that is less than the present. It's a future that is more than what we have now. I love hanging out with dying people. It's sad, it's, it's, it's painful in many ways, but the last three people I've walked with to the grave, I've gotten to do this little spiel with them. They're, they're, without fail, if you sit with a dying person long enough, they're gonna ask you, what do you think it's gonna be like? And when this happens, what I tend to do is I keep this little, anytime I'm visiting a dying person, I keep a, a blank folded piece of paper in my wallet so that I can pull it out for such a time as this. I pull out this paper and I draw this little stick figure with a little cloud on top. And so you get this two sticks and a little cloud and I ask them, what's that? And they say, well, it's a tree. Have you ever seen a tree? That doesn't look like a tree. It just symbolizes a tree. It just calls to mind a tree. But the real tree is right outside. Look at the bark. You can, it's got texture. It's got colors. It might even have fruit that you can taste. The real tree is nothing like the tree on the paper. My friends, we treat this life as if it's the tree in heaven and eternal life and new creation as if it's a stick figure drawing. And Paul says, switch that. You don't know what it's like to eat a banana yet. You don't know what it's like to enjoy shade just yet or to enjoy the thrill of jumping for the first time into the ocean. You don't know what it's like to hear birds sing yet. You've just been enjoying the stick figure drawings before the real thing comes. Are you bored now? I think we are underwhelmed by what's to come, and inappropriately so. The Bible describes a future where we will be smelling, seeing, hearing, tasting, and touching. Those images are important. We're not disembodied spirits in the future. We're not fat, naked babies on clouds. We are flesh and blood men and women who see, hear, touch, taste, and smell. You know, it's the tasting part that captures my imagination the most. <laughs> I, love the, I love the image. 
in scripture where, where it talks about, I mean, scripture speaks of a future feast where we will eat meat with marrow and fat off the bone. Texas Roadhouse has nothing on that. We're gonna drink well-aged wine and none of us are gonna embarrass ourselves when we do so. Now you might think, oh, those are metaphorical, just describing what it's gonna be like. No, 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 I don't think so. Isaiah 25 talks about it. Revelation 19 talks about it. Jesus talked about a table where the nations will come. Given as much as Jesus and scripture talked about how we will eat, I do not think we have room to describe it as merely metaphorical. You are one day going to drink sweet, well-aged wine from a cup that Jesus himself serves you. With his resurrected physical hands. Can you imagine what it's like to reach out and grab that cup and to bump hands with Jesus? What it's like for Jesus to ask you, how's the steak? My friends, we just don't, we're not taken up by this. I think in part because we just don't understand how this current futility works in with this forthcoming glory. We, 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 if we didn't have futility, maybe we'd enjoy creation more, right? Well, no, that's not what Paul says. In fact, if you're looking at futility rightly, it should be causing you to crave and want this coming glory more. If you had no suffering in this life, you would not want an ounce of new creation. Not one ounce of it. The present futility is meant to inspire you up to hope. It is a God-given futility. A God-given futility that he mercifully gives us so that in our present pain, we can look forward to and anticipate the peace that can only be brought by God. If we didn't have that, we wouldn't crave God. If we didn't have cancer, would we ever long for a day that there would be not cancer? If we didn't have suffering, would there ever be a day that we would look forward to God giving us true shalom again and bringing us peace? I don't think so. C.S. Lewis once wrote that if God gave us the security and safety that we want in this world, as opposed to the futility that we have, then the security we crave would teach us to rest our hearts in this world and would oppose an obstacle to our return to God. In other words, if he gave you all the things that you want right now, you wouldn't want him. You wouldn't long for him. If he gave you all the desires of your heart at this moment, there's no need for him. But God allows us this measure of enjoyment and futility. We can visit amazing places. We can see God's beautiful creatures. We see amazing landscapes. We catch glimpses of the glory to come and beauty to come in this world. And yet there's still danger. There's still fear. There's still decay. And that is purposeful. That mixture of beauty and awesomeness and yet fear and death and decay is, is intentional and intentionally given by God. Without that mixture of futility and beauty, see, Lewis explains, our father, with this mixture of futility and beauty, our father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant inns, little hotels, hostels, but will not encourage us to make them home. It's awesome. I can go to places like where I'm going. I'm going with the men's group uh, to Boundary Waters this next week. I can visit those places and just have my, my soul stirred up by the dark sky and the brightest stars you've ever seen. It's in the top 10 places in the world not to be affected by light pollution. I can catch a fish, cook it up, and eat it right there on that fire. And I can tell you, after a day of run, there's nothing that tastes better. And yet, the boundary of waters are filled with decay brokenness and danger. People die. We presently walk through a world that is beautiful and yet bitter. Beautiful and yet fallen. With groaning bodies, knowing and trusting that a world and bodies free from groaning are on the horizon. 
My friends, there's some days that weeks get, and, and, and things get so tough, and there's so many fears that I can't help but just sit on my back porch and just play imagination. Can you imagine where your mind can take you when you just dwell on? Allow yourself, so, there, imagination is a sacred thing, right? We're not playing pretend. We're trying to imagine, to look ahead. We always are, well, I can't imagine what's to come. No eye has seen, no ears. No, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't anticipate it to wonder, what's it gonna be like? I walked among giant sequoia trees and sat underneath a massive one and just wondered, what are trees gonna be like in the new creation? Some of you know I have that weird obsession and fascination with bears. Um, it's the weirdest thing about me, probably. You also know that I like to go photograph bears. So I got a few pictures to show from my latest trip. Um, oh, look at that. Aren't those guys cuddly? Don't you just want to walk up to those guys and just pick them up and play with them? I mean, we got, we got more pictures here. Look at that. He's standing. Isn't that, that just thrills your heart to see that, right? Like, little guy, and he's sitting there, and if you could have seen it, he did this little dance. I mean, it was the cutest thing I've ever seen. And then they are running and chasing together. They'd tackle each other and bite in each other's ears. Now, that's the beauty of creation that I'm talking about. God has infused moments like that so that we can remember that there's beauty to come. And yet it's mixed with that. <laughs> you see the claws in that thing? The week before, somebody had gotten mauled by something like that. As cute and cuddly as those little bears are, their teeth get bigger, their claws get sharper, and they can eat you. And I just remember sitting here taking a picture of these guys and wondering, what are grizzlies going to be like in the future when they know that they shouldn't eat the children of God? I mean, they're... If, if Romans 8 means anything, creation's going to awake to the fact that God's people are his children and that they're the heirs, they're the stewards, they're the masters, they're the lords that creation now obeys. So I get this image of beauty, and yet I see the big grizzly, and I'm like, okay, this is an inn of happiness. This is a momentary stay that gives me a glimpse of the beauty to come, and yet there is this also massive picture of danger and death reminding me that I'm not there yet. Can you imagine what kinds of attitudes of worship and what posture your heart can have just by having those two images of baby, cute, beautiful grizzlies playing together, and yet in the same momentary image, the image of something that could absolutely own you. And I think, God, you're bringing a new world with new creatures that are as powerful as that and never again will we hear about bear maulings. There should be bears. Fairly confident there will be bears. So God instills in our heart this futility and this beauty. Because he's instilled this futility with beauty, we can enjoy and get glimpses of beauty to come. And we should seek it out whenever we can. Go to the Boundary Waters. Go on a hike. Go in your backyard and watch the Red Cardinals play. Go sit in the garden that you planted and wonder at how God sends rains and causes things to sprout. Go stand before the Grand Canyon just to imagine the majesty and greatness of God. You should seek it out when you can, but at the same time, the futility reminds you, you're not there yet, but it is coming. It is coming. Now, as difficult as this full physical restoration may be to believe, it is central to our faith as Christians. Whatever pain, death, or destruction we may see or experience in this life, we live in the hope of a new world that is coming, even if we don't know what that world would be, will be like. We've never seen anything like this. We've never imagined this kind of flourishing and this kind of peace and this kind of joy. Paul says this, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what he sees, in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it in patience. We hope in something no human eye has ever seen. 
nor human ear has ever heard, nor human mouth has ever tasted. In fact, it's kind of the point about hope, right? We hope in something because we don't currently have it. If we currently had it, then we wouldn't have to hope in it anymore. But we hope for it now because we know that we currently don't have it. And when hard times come, we as Christians retain this hope, we hold on to this hope, and we cling to it. We hope even more, and we wait patiently on God as he has promised. My friends, I'm telling you this for your good. More suffering is to come in your life. More suffering is to come. You cannot avoid it. You have some really bitter days ahead. And when those days come, my prayer is that you'll think about the great joy and the hope that you have. That you won't become some hopeless fool that's losing their mind. That you won't despair and be cynical and broken and angry and mean and jerkish. But that you'll be a joyful sufferer, knowing that this is how you're going to get through to the glory. And we know this hope doesn't come easy, right? We all grumble, we all groan, especially while living in a world where everything seemed hopeless. So what can we do to better foster this hope? How can we live in the new world to come before it gets here? What resource do we have to have patience when our pain is threatening to wear us out? Paul gives us two answers. First, we must rely on the Spirit to do what only He can do. And second, we must put all of our trust in God's commitment to finish the work He began. Now, between mass shootings, widespread anger, political turmoil, economic struggles, global fears of war, not to mention just the natural struggles of just trying to make ends meet and to get through your health problems, it's difficult not to become cynical, hopeless people, right? It's difficult not to become angry people or bitter people. And yet, God's people should not be cynical, hopeless, despairing curmudgeons. He doesn't call us to that. He calls us to something bitter. You have a bitter spirit, you need to repent because God has called you to be a person of hope someone who retains faith. Where then does this hope come from if it doesn't come from us? Well, Paul answers that to this end, we must look to the Spirit. Hear what he has to say in verses 26 through 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Once again, he acknowledges our weakness, which in this context speaks of spiritual weakness, not necessarily physical weakness. We are spiritually weak. Paul knows that when suffering comes, we are too weak to even know how to pray. If you've ever had a friend who's told you that they've gotten their latest diagnosis, that the tumor hasn't shrunk like the doctors thought it would, you know how difficult it is to pray after that. What do you even say? For someone who faces such a bitter and painful future. Let's take it a little closer to home. What do you do when you're waiting for test results? How do you pray when you're waiting for clarity? You just don't know what's going on with your body and you, you're, you're waiting for MRIs, you're waiting for uh, blood tests, for heart monitors to come back, you're waiting for the, the breathing aptitude test, you're waiting for the stress test and all these things and you're sitting there waiting, and you're trying to stay in control of your thoughts. If you're like me, it's in the moments before I fall asleep that those thoughts run haywire. It's in the quiet moments in the afternoon when I'm sitting by myself that it's hard not to dwell on those thoughts. So what do you do? How can you cast your anxiety upon the Lord, trusting that he cares for you, when the path ahead looks so bleak. Oftentimes, especially during suffering, our prayers are not all that eloquent, are they? Sometimes, most times, when we suffer, our prayers come out as nothing more than an inarticulate groan. 
been in some situations that were pretty bitter where the, the person involved, where the family member could do nothing but just moan. Ask why God a couple of times. That was about the only articulate, audible thing that I could hear. Just hearing someone groan. Did you know that God hears and knows and receives that groaning as prayer? The reason he hears is because the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The word helps here in this passage is more singularly focused, meaning that it is the Spirit who bears the load of our groaning as opposed to a dual work. It's not presenting the Spirit's help like a two-man team lifting a heavy load together where the Spirit gets one end of the couch of our anxiety and we get the other end of the couch and together we heave it up and he helps us. That's not the kind of help the Spirit brings. It's more as if you tried to carry the couch and it fell on top of you. And now you can't get up. The Spirit comes and lifts it off, helps you. And then he brings the couch of your anxiety to your Father in heaven. How amazing is it that God in all of his great love put his spirit inside of us so that in moments when we don't even know what to say, we don't even know what we're going to ask for, we don't know whether to pray to live or to die, we don't know whether to pray for the new job or to get fired. When those moments come and all we can do is groan, we have a spirit of God living and dwelling inside of us that intercedes with a groaning of his own. I, I was floored by the way this text is worded. I've always thought that, you know, this text was saying that he picks up our groanings and then interprets them to the Father. No, no, the spirit groans on our behalf. I just, you know, I'm not trying to be comical or lighthearted here about it, but it's like, you know, I wake up on Monday and it's, it's, it's full of suffering and I groan, oh, I don't know what to pray. The Spirit arrives before the throne of God and God's like, well, what do you pray? And the Spirit's, oh, and God's like, got it, understand. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Which means when the spirit takes part in groaning, God knows what our groaning's all about and how to answer it. Which means your most nonsensical, your most inaudible, your most inarticulate groanings in pain become prayer because of an intercessor who can change groaning into prayer. If you've ever just been so much in pain that you can do nothing more but God help me, God why, God answer. If you've been in that kind of situation, the Spirit's there taking up that groaning and groaning with you and bringing it to the throne of God. God hears even your groans. He helps you in times of suffering, in your weakness. Now what does that mean? When suffering becomes so strong and it leaves you bent over in pain, doubled up, can't pray, trust and rely on the Spirit of God to do what only the Spirit of God can do. Groan and groan freely. And let the Spirit of God do what only the Spirit of God can do as he joins in the groaning before the throne of God. Rely on him. There's just sometimes I have nothing left. I don't know why I'm sad. Don't know why I'm depressed. Don't know why I don't want to get out. Don't know why what's going on. I don't know how to deal with the fear. I don't know how to articulate my fears of, of what my children might face or when my wife has a headache and, and wondering what in the world's going on with that. Is this a bigger problem? Is, am I going to lose her? And there's moments like that when I'm on the floor moaning. Every one of those get up to the throne where it is heard, noted, and answered. Not always in ways that I expected, but answered. So we rely on the Spirit to do what only Spirit can do, but then we also trust that God will complete what he begun. Can I just ask you guys, do you believe that God ever starts something he doesn't intend to finish? I hope you don't believe that he does. Whatever God starts, he will finish. 
God loves us. And because God loves us, he will accomplish his loving purposes for us. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Rightly so, this is one of the most quoted passages in the context of suffering, isn't it? Con- suffering happens and somebody's gonna say Romans 8, 28, and rightly so, they should. This is meant to give us hope in suffering. The phrase we know expresses confidence. We know that for those who love God, all things work for the good. But I think it's important to know what Paul means by good. Good defined by us and good defined by God are two distinct things. This passage is not promising that if you love God, then you'll become wealthier, that you'll be spared sickness or escape downsizing. Instead, it means that whatever we face, whether it's poverty, whether it's disease, whether it's job loss, whether it's injustice, God will use our suffering to accomplish his good ends, his good goals. Paul explains later in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for this, and listen to how he describes suffering, this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. Did you hear that? He's not saying that this suffering is gonna go away and then we get glory. What he's saying is the suffering at this moment is preparing us. There is no such thing as a wasted affliction in God's work. Any kind of suffering, if God is sovereign, then any kind of suffering that he allows to make it to your life is meant because without that suffering, some good end, some good purpose, whether it's greater trust, whether it's a greater affection for the Lord, whether it's a sweeter acceptance that God loves you even when your body's in decay, he uses all of that to fulfill his purpose. All of it. How can we know it's true? Well, we can know it's true because God finishes what he started. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. For those of you that don't like words like predestined or predestination, right there. Take it up with Paul. Not gonna spend a whole lot of time defining predestination. We'll deal with predestination, election, all that kind of stuff in Romans 9. For those whom God foreknew, he also, there it is, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, foreknowledge is pretty clear. It just simply means that God, God, views his, God uh, knows his people before time even began. Before uh, light lit the world, before ocean waves crashed against the coast, before trees grew silently in the forest, God knew you who believe in Jesus Christ. He knew you. He knew that you were his people, that you were his. And then he predestined you, meaning that he chose beforehand that you would be made after the image of his son. In other words, you're going to look like Jesus someday. He predestined that. They'd be conformed to the image of the Son. And what's the image of the Son? Well, it's glorious, isn't it? He's a glorious God in flesh. He, he wants us to, to follow after the pattern of who Jesus is and to look like Jesus. Now, how strange would it be for God to know us before creation even began, to predestine us to take on the glorious image of his Son, and then the change is mine. It would be incredibly un-God-like for him to leave that plan unfinished, wouldn't it? God being the omnipotent, faithful God he is. If he doesn't finish it because he can't, he's not omnipotent. If he doesn't finish it because he doesn't want to, he's not faithful. But God being an omnipotent and faithful God he is, he will not change his mind and he will not abandon his work. Quite the contrary, God will finish what he started. 
because he knew you, because he predestined you, he called you, made evident by the fact that you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. Because he called you, he also justified you, declared you innocent because of the finished work of Jesus. And because you are justified, you are also glorified. Now we should consider one last thing. I know I'm going a bit long today, as always. We should consider one more thing before we close out this section. Do you, do you catch that he uses the word glorified and doesn't say will be glorified? He uses the aorist tense, those whom he justified, he also glorified. Did Paul make some kind of grammatical error here? I mean, if our glory is still to come, why wouldn't he say will be glorified? Why does he say glorified? That's, is anybody else weirded out by weird grammatical moves like that? Here's what I think he's doing. He's not made a grammatical mistake. I think he's showing that though we are still waiting for our inheritance of glory to come, our glory has already been secured because Jesus, in whom we are located redemptively, has already ascended to glory. As one commentator says, while we have not yet experienced glory, the divine decision to glorify those who have been justified has already been made, the issue is settled you're going to be glorified. Why? Because Jesus, the firstborn, the leader, the head of God's people, the representative has been glorified. He's already died. That justified us. Then he rose again and he ascended to the right hand of God. That glorified us. If we are in Christ and Christ is at the right hand throne of God, it's as good as done. It's secure. Jesus cannot be dethroned, can he? Can Jesus be robbed of his glory? Does Jesus ever receive less glory? My friends, then you cannot lose your glory to come. Might as well use a past tense, aorist tense, glorified. We have been glorified, will be glorified, because Jesus, our King, sits on the throne, presently glorified. So we march on. Paul's laid out this amazing promise. He has proclaimed the coming of a new creation free from futility and corruption. He has spoken about our future bodies that will be redeemed from every curse and every withering disease. No more back pains, no more heart attacks, no more any of that. And therefore, we are to live with that in view in this present age of futility and suffering in hope. Hoping how? Hoping by relying on the Spirit to help us in our weakness hoping by trusting and knowing that God leaves none of his work unfinished. And it is in this hope that we were saved. It is in this hope that we patiently wait, knowing that the birth pains will soon end and new creation will be born. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the promise that you've given us. We thank you for helping us to dwell in new creation promises. Father, I pray that it will excite us as it should, that we won't be ashamed to imagine it and to dwell upon it. So Father, we lift up all of our hearts to you, asking you to help us. Help us rely on your spirit when we can't hope properly. Help us to trust that you do not leave your work unfinished. And we pray this in your son's name, amen.